This is episode 15 of The Teacher's Pet. Listeners are advised that this podcast contains coarse language and adult themes. This podcast series is brought to you by The Australian. Lynette Dawson was reported missing by her husband, former Newtown Jets rugby league star Chris Dawson. He said I was going to get a hitman to kill Lynn and he rang me and said Lynn's gone, she isn't coming back. I just want justice and I'd love her little girls to know she didn't leave them. This is 10 News First, Sydney, with Sandra Sully. Stunning developments in Sydney's most notorious cold case murder. Police have started digging for the remains of missing mum Lynette Dawson, who disappeared 36 years ago and is thought to be buried in the garden of her family home at Bayview on the northern beaches. It is a Wednesday in September, a few weeks after the Teacher's Pet podcast series released its 14th episode then paused to leave police and prosecutors with the work of trying to bring an alleged killer to justice. Police cars, vans and trucks began arriving in Gilwinga Drive, Bayview, before the children in this picturesque area went off to school. New South Wales detectives and support crews led by the homicide squad Scott Cook have come in search of evidence. Evan Batten, what have they found? Well, Sharon, this is anything but a quick and easy excavation. We're told day one here at the Bayview home has gone well. They've had success lifting pavers around the backyard swimming pool and underneath the clothesline, although tomorrow they are going to need some extra equipment to help them help them cut through some cement slabs that are slightly thicker than they first expected. But police are vowing that they will not give up on this cold case until they're in a position to lay charges over the murder of Lynette Dawson. They're searching by hand with shovels and power tools. Digging back in time, hoping to find a trace of Lynette Dawson not seen for 36 years. Detectives are hoping to change the minds of prosecutors who have refused to support charges being laid against Lynette's husband, Chris Dawson. Lynn Dawson lived and loved in this house that she and Chris built beyond the swimming pool and a steep driveway which the high school sports teacher had paved in happier times before Chris started grooming a 16-year-old Cromer high school girl, Joanne Curtis. The pressure on police to return to the house for the first truly thorough search in all these years since Lynn vanished was building over several months leading up to September. Police Commissioner Mick Fuller was determined that the cops on his watch would not screw up this renewed cold case investigation. Fuller doesn't make excuses for cops in the 1980s who knew Chris, played football with him, and turned a blind eye to the suspicious disappearance of his wife, a mother of two. It wasn't until later where we commenced what would I call a reasonable investigation into her disappearance, and it's challenging for me to try and reflect back 32 years ago. Was it a mistake? Was it incompetence? Or was it corruption? Um, I'll never know the answer to that. Former police forensic officer Bob Gibbs was among those who believed Lynn's body might still be there, perhaps buried near the pool and missed in an earlier limited dig which found a pink cardigan with multiple cut marks. Evidence of Chris's unusual return visits to the property in the years after he had sold it in late 1984 
and the question that Chris had asked the new owner Neville Johnston during his landscaping, where are you digging, only reinforced Commissioner Fuller's view. The new search was a necessity, not just to try to uncover evidence which should have been the subject of an exhaustive search many years ago, but also to restore public confidence and to prove to Lynn's family that the police, this time, would do their jobs properly. As detectives mapped the property in secrecy weeks ahead of going in there, I was being emailed and called by the heads of construction companies, by multi-millionaires and residents of Sydney's Northern Beaches, and by many listeners of the teacher's pet across Australia and around the world. They were offering their money for a public cause to help achieve justice for Lynn. Searching the property at Bayview was one way they felt they might make a tangible and meaningful difference. People who never knew this woman proposed buying her old house on this hilltop of rugged beauty above Sydney's northern beaches. They proposed demolishing the entire structure, turning over the earth and rocks across an acre of steep ground, and finally, when the searching had finished, dedicating the land as a public park in Lynn's memory. For all of these pressing reasons, a new and exhaustive search was always going to happen. It was just a matter of timing. Scott Cook and his detectives quietly briefed the new owners of the house about their plans. The owners gave their full consent. They wanted to know whether Lynn's remains were in the ground. There would be no need to execute warrants. Police asked that the operation be kept confidential until the day their teams and heavy equipment rolled up. Lynn's sister Pat Jenkins and brother Greg Sims were briefed by police days in advance. I just know they're going there. I don't know any details. Well, the way they were speaking, it sounded as if it was, you know, sort of not in the, not in the future. It sounded like it was, you know, sort of fairly imminent. Pat and Greg believe Lynn was killed in the house shortly after Lynn told her mother on the telephone that a marriage counselling appointment with Chris on the afternoon of January 8, 1982, had gone well and that everything was going to be all right. The day before the police returned to the house to try to find her sister's remains, Pat was apprehensive about what lay ahead. I always think that because he, um, Dawson used to go and look at the backyard, I imagine there'd be somewhere in the backyard, but I, I don't know. I always feel such compassion for the owners, and I know they haven't been there that long because it must be so upsetting for them. So I suppose if it resolves... The question if Lynn's there, you know, if that's decided, well then, you know, that, that'll be the finish of that. You know, yeah. they won't be living in a place where they think maybe there's a body. I've always thought I should write to owners and just say that, you know, Lynn really loved that house and she, you know, it was her sort of creation. I know people have added to it, but mm. um, she wouldn't want anyone to be unhappy there. Bob Gibbs was helping the detective then in charge of the murder investigation. Damien Loon, when they discovered the pink cardigan in the earth beneath the pavers next to the pool 18 years ago. Bob told me back in August, a month before the new dig, that he and the other cops back then should have been allowed to do a more exhaustive search, but police budgets were tight and they were restricted to dig in a relatively small area. When Bob heard the police were returning to do the job properly over several days in September, he was relieved and hopeful. I heard they started digging again. Yeah, well, they've been embarrassed, haven't they? You know, that's the main, probably the main reason. Of course it is, yeah. They've got to do it, don't they? Even if uh, she's not there, but um, 
I reckon she probably is. I don't know why he would have left that jumper there. Well, assuming she's been stabbed and that is her jumper, you know, it's probably happened inside and he's probably, you know, it happens all the time. People go, oh, what am I going to do? And they leave the body there while they think about it. You know, she's going to have a lot of holes and it's going to make a big mess. So you'd at least need to search the inside of the house for, you know, blood if you're going to do it properly. We never went in when I was involved. Hopefully they'll find something else force the DPP. So, well, if, if they find the body, I don't think the DPP will be involved anymore. They just charge him. But I don't know. Do you know exactly where they're digging at the moment? Good morning, everyone. Uh, Scott Cook's my name. I'm the commander of Homicide Squad in New South Wales. As you know, we're here today uh, conducting a police operation in regards to the Dawson murder. Okay, so today we're digging in four areas. Uh, a small area at the back of the house between the rock and the, and the building. Uh, another area in the backyard near the clothesline. Uh, another area just a little bit further up in the backyard and around the pool area. And so what's different about this dig is it'll be more extensive. Um, we were, we're using uh, new technologies uh, as part of this examination. Uh, as you know, this premises was previously owned by Lynette and Chris Dawson. Um, we're here for approximately five days, we anticipate, perhaps more, depending on weather. We're searching a number of areas around the property. Uh, I'd ask you all to be, please be mindful that the, the owners of this property um, would like their privacy respected. It's very important that they are not um, encumbered or, or followed. Uh, we really appreciate your cooperation in regards to that. Scott Cook spoke to journalists at the bottom of the driveway of Lynn's old home. It is a matter of public record that Lynn's half share in the property was transferred to Chris after he had persuaded a judge that she had abandoned him as well as her two young daughters and that she remained inconveniently hidden and out of contact with everyone. Is there anything that's really pushed you to come today? If you had a, is there any evidence that makes you feel you're confident that you might find something? No, this is important that we do the best job we can. This is all about getting justice for Lynn. And we need to put our best foot forward and we need to make sure that the evidence that we present is sound. Does a conviction wholly depend on you finding remains there? No. No. You're digging in more spots than previously. Why is that? Uh, we've, we've done a full survey of the, of the landscape and we just want to be sure. I mean, I don't want to be coming back here again in three months. I don't want to be coming back here again in 12 months. So we want to make sure that we can put this to bed about the examination of this property. How, how deep are you going this time? Well, in terms of the pool, we'll go to the bottom of the pool. Um, in terms of uh, the other parts of the yard, we'll go to the hit rock. Behind Scott Cook and up the driveway, police and rescue squad personnel pushed wheelbarrows of earth. The noise from jackhammering equipment and concrete cutting saws floated across the usually quiet hilltop. A TV news chopper circled the suburb, providing aerial perspectives of this beautiful area overlooking the blue of Pittwater and the northern beaches. We have all the building plans, all the engineers' reports, all that sort of evidence we have. So we know what's been done, we have photographs. We've got a good understanding of this particular property. Um, we have uh, radar penetration looking at the ground. We have... There's a lot of work that's been done here. So it is a complex block of land because it's largely rock. And so digging is not easy. Superintendent, if you don't find any remains here, you, you sort of touched on this before, if you don't find any remains here, are you confident you could still proceed with charging Chris Dawson? Absolutely. That's why I wrote to the director in April. 
Another reporter asked the senior cop whether they would be searching under the swimming pool. No, the pool was actually there before Lynette was murdered. Scott Cook's blunt public view of what had happened to Lynn, that she was murdered, must have worried Chris Dawson, who has always maintained his innocence and insists that his wife left with a plastic shopping bag, but not her children, her jewellery or her valuable stake in her house. And Carly Egan, there are a number of links to Queensland. Sharon, members of the Dawson family do live here and they have done for some time. Neighbours have told us they saw someone leaving that address in a taxi early this morning. Tonight, it is not clear where he is as this investigation intensifies. The moment that the family's been waiting for has finally arrived. Here's 2GB radio broadcaster Ben Fordham, a staunch supporter of Lynn's family and the podcast investigations into her probable murder. And that brings us to today, where dozens of forensic police descended on that property in Bayview, which is Lynette's old home. Marilyn Sims is Lynette's sister-in-law, and she joins me on the line. Marilyn, good afternoon. While we're so delighted that this is going ahead, you know, you mixed feelings, very mixed feelings. But I'm guessing part of you would be thinking, oh, yeah, but Ben, we've heard all of this before, right? You guys have had your hopes up so many times, and those hopes have been dashed. That's true, Ben, that's true. I, I think um, yeah, we're a little frightened to get too ahead of ourselves, but this just means so much to us. Um, we, we, truly, we truly hope that we do find men, um, that we can put it to rest, but if we don't, at least we know we've got the police working so hard for us now. You mentioned that and the role of Mick Fuller, the New South Wales police boss. He's really injected his own stamp on this, hasn't he? After decades of mismanagement by various people in New South Wales police, not all of them, I want to make clear because there have been some really good cops who've worked on this case over the years. Marilyn, you've told me before and other members of the family have told me that it's exhausting. As much as you guys dedicate your lives to trying to work out what happened to Lynn, every time a media organisation turns up or there's an anniversary or a little bit of evidence or information, you know, you go the rounds with the media, the TV crews or the newspaper journalists and a story's written, but then it doesn't go anywhere. Even after two coroners recommended a case be brought against Chris Dawson, that didn't eventuate. You've had your hopes up so many times and you've been exhausted so many times by the process, but hasn't it been a game changer? I mean, you literally have millions of people in Australia and around the world who are part of your family almost now. Absolutely. It's so true, Ben. We had absolutely no idea where this would go. Lynn will never be forgotten now. She's not going to be swept under the carpet any longer. People that we've never met, I'm getting things on Messenger from people we've never met wanting to send their love and support. Um, it's just phenomenal. We, Lynn would be pretty blown away by all this. Um, she was a fairly humble person, but I really think on the side she'd be quite pleased to know that now she's being heard. Are you nervous at the moment as they dig there at Bayview? Yes, we are, yeah. I'm, I'm, as I'm speaking to you here, I'm sort of shaking. I think it's anticipation, it's the unknown, and this is what we've dealt with. Um, yeah, it's tough. It's really tough. Do you think she's there? I want to believe she's there. I would love to think that the family finally gets the opportunity to put her to rest the way she needs to be put to rest and for our minds to be put to rest. We know that, okay, if they don't find her there, the police are not giving up now. They're going to continue this fight 
And, um, you know, we, we're really hopeful, very, very hopeful that something will come of all this. Throughout the day, people who had spoken out in the teacher's pet, including former students of Cromer High, Lynn's friends and family and many others, waited apprehensively for news. My friend and colleague David Murray recorded many of the reactions of Lynn's family and others as the dig got underway. Here's Lynn's cousin, Wendy Jennings, almost too overwhelmed by emotion to get the words out that day. bit anxious. I'm hoping they've got it right because I I, I just find it hard to... um, Except, I think it, it, it sort of comes as a bit of a shock, but then all of a sudden it hits and, um, you know, and it's been like that for 36 years. We get our hopes up and then we get let down. Here's Bev McNally, the former babysitter in the house who witnessed Chris lashing out violently against Lynn and has become an important new witness in the police brief of evidence. So, I mean, I'm, I've been quite emotional all day, but it, it's... It's hard to watch. You're hopeful that they'll find something. But when the commissioner turned around and said, well, maybe we'll arrest without a body, that's, you know, it, it, it just all shows that maybe they are listening to us. At least something's being done rather than this silent war we've had. Cromer High's former vice-captain, Robin Wheeler, has been a powerful advocate for those girls at the school who were preyed on by the teachers. Robin was holidaying in the jungle in Sri Lanka when news broke of the dig and her Facebook feed lit up. I'm delighted to hear that, that the dig's going on. Um, Let's hope we can get some closure for the two girls and uh, for the family. Separately to the murder investigation, police in Strike Force Southwood have been investigating the sex offences against Cromer High's former students and Robin has been integral to its momentum. It would appear that the police are all over it. The police are pinpointing the location of activities at, at the high school with an aerial uh, shot of the campus. But it certainly will will be pretty scary for those teachers. Yeah. But my understanding is that um, people are starting to come out of the woodwork. So the police are, are definitely throwing resources at it. Once people have made a statement, they post something and say, I spent three hours yesterday with police. or So I'd say that there's a, definitely a groundswell. And obviously with this um, dig going on now, um, it's all happening. Peter Selge, who lives very close to Chris and Lynn's old home, emailed to tip me off about the police presence as it happened. Once it sort of reality hits that they're actually digging and they might find a body, you know, I actually shed a tear that day because I'm thinking, crikey, you know, these the family have been around for or hoping that there'll be an answer for so long, and I fully expected that they'd find something straight away. And I just thought, what are the, you know, what are the family thinking on the other side of town with all this going on? And uh, and sort of the, the excitement of it all fades, and you, you know, it becomes a bit emotional when you think that it's, you know, it's more than just a story now. It's it's someone's life. So I don't know. It just seemed that that day was the day that it was all going to come together, which is probably why I got emotional. Like many in the street, Peter came here with his wife and young family because they believed they'd found paradise and knew nothing of the dark history. Oh, I do feel very sorry for Joanne Curtis, who seems to be caught up in the whole thing. You know, she was obviously very young and naive at the time, and now she's a you know, grown woman, but um, yeah, she's caught up in it and some of the reporting 
that um, I've seen on TV with reporters chasing her. I, I feel very sorry for her. Shortly before the dig, Joanne was out walking near the beach at DY with a TV film crew in pursuit. Do you know anything about Lynn Dawson's disappearance? When our producer Ashley Scully caught up with Joanne, the now 54-year-old was reluctant to talk. Surely you've got something you need to say and get off your chest. Anything at all? Joanne looked exhausted and distressed. Do you know anything that happened to Lynn? Anything about what happened to her? She made no comment. People have been so captured uh, by this story, not just a big relief to Lynn's family, but I think everyone just wants an outcome here. Sky News presenter Laura Jays was concerned about the owners too. I mean, this must really uproot their lives. This must be a pretty big decision for them to make to allow police in to completely uh, destroy their backyard to, to look at a body. Um, you're right. It's incredibly distressing for the current owners. Mm. Um, they're um, people who saw this property uh, as a dream home, a retirement property. I know how distressed they have been by the attention on the home. Um, they're supported by Lynn's family, and if there's nothing there, that's a great relief. I don't think many Australians or many homeowners anywhere would like to, to live without certainty yeah. over yeah. something such as this. But if they find a body mm. on, the, on the property, I've got no doubt that somebody will be charged very quickly over an unlawful killing. That evening, Lynn's niece, Renee Sims, spoke to the ABC's 7.30 program host, Lee Sales. Renee, if this search that started today doesn't discover your aunt's remains, what comes next for the family? I think, if anything, we, we just need this to be done so we know whether she's there or not. I think if we don't find anything, then we move on to the next step, whatever that is. But this really just has to be done first. As the police dig at Bayview continued, I drove north from Sydney's northern beaches towards Lake Munmora, where Paul Dawson had told police he went camping with Marilyn and their children at the time of Lynn's probable murder. The lake is an easy detour and a short distance from the main highway. There are campgrounds, huge tracts of bushland fringing the coastline and the lake, hikers' trails and stunning beaches, sometimes sprinkled with nude sunbathers. Unfortunately, there are no known records to verify who stayed in the caravan park at Lake Munmora in January 1982, and Paul Dawson was not formally interviewed by police until 1999, 17 years after Lynn's disappearance. In his tape-recorded interview on the Gold Coast, Paul told detectives John Pendergast and Damien Loon that he and his wife Marilyn had borrowed a camper van from a relative. The transcript shows that Paul didn't offer the relative's name, and he wasn't asked to provide a name. Paul told the police that he and the family went to Lake Munmora on a Wednesday, two days before the Friday evening on which police believe Lynn was killed. Chris drove towards Southwest Rocks on the Saturday evening, probably just a few hours after his shift at Northbridge Baths had ended. You'll recall from earlier episodes that Chris claimed he took a call from Lynn in the early afternoon. He said she had called the telephone in the kiosk at the Baths. Many listeners have asked about it, and there are no known telephone records from the time. But as a teenager back then, Jane Morgan earned pocket money by working at the baths and in the kiosk with Chris Dawson. Her name then was Jane Shrimpton. 
you were working on the day January 9, 1982 yeah. yep. at Northbridge Baths. Yes. And I've given, yeah, because I've got this little diary. Actually, I can go and get, get it now if I can read it out to you if you want. Most of the diary stuff is painful 17-year-old scribblings, you know, embarrassing. Would you mind photographing that page? Yep, that's fine. January 9, and yep. emailing it to me? Chris claimed that in their purported telephone conversation, Lynn had said to him that she needed some time away from him and their daughters to think things over. He claimed that Lynn had said she was on the Central Coast with friends. But in all these years, nobody has stepped forward to say, I was one of those friends Lynn visited. Lynn didn't have close friends on the Central Coast. Joanne has told police that Chris had arrived at Southwest Rocks late that Saturday night, or perhaps early the next morning, while she was camping with her Cromer High School friends in the Sleepy Village, about 450 kilometres north of Bayview. Joanne said Chris had slept in his car at the other end of the beach, near the ruins of the historic Trial Bay Jail, where German scientists and intellectuals of social standing were interned during the First World War. Joanne's friends have recalled talking to Chris at Southwest Rocks on Sunday, January 10. He looked agitated, worried. He wasn't himself. But Paul told police that he did not even know Lynn had disappeared until Paul's camping trip with Marilyn and their children ended the following Wednesday, January 13, the day on which Paul said he and his family returned to Bayview. This is how Marilyn described the camping trip in her first police interview, 17 years later. These are Marilyn's words. It's not her voice. I I think it was. Sorry, I don't know specifically. I don't think I even have photos. I don't, except I think it was the Lake Munmora Caravan Park. The Dawson story is that while driving towards Southwest Rocks to fetch Joanne, Chris was close to Lake Munmora and the most important person in his life, Paul. Yet Chris didn't stop in at the caravan park to see Paul. At a time when Chris, at least on his version of events, should have been distressed and needing his brother's support because Lynn had suddenly taken off without warning for the first time in their married life. The next day, Sunday, January 10, Chris drove back from Southwest Rocks the same way. Joanne was beside him and her younger sister Nicole in the back seat of the family station wagon. Instead of making an easy detour to Lake Munmora to visit Paul and Marilyn, to tell them troubling news about Lynn having supposedly taken off for a while, leaving him with the girls, Chris went past his brother a second time. And it strikes those who knew the strangely close twins as highly unusual that Chris would not have gone to see Paul on the way to or from Southwest Rocks. During my drive alongside Lake Munmora, I spoke to Neil Buckridge. He lives at Cowra, a country town west of Sydney. Mum and Dad died, so I couldn't afford to live in Sydney, so I uh, just bought, out, bought a little hobby farm out here and, and just paddled around out here trying to stay out of trouble. I'll tell you about the incident, of, about his explosive um, temper, if you want. It happened, and uh, I saw it happen, and I've never forgotten it. You'll hear Neil describe the incident in detail later in this episode. If you believe the police case that Lynn Dawson was killed by Chris on the Friday night or early Saturday morning, 
before he did his shift at Northbridge Baths. An intriguing question revolves around whether he had planned to kill Lynn or whether her death was an unintended accident. Chris has always strenuously denied wrongdoing and he insists his wife just left him and her daughters. Paul and Marilyn back Chris. They say he would never harm Lynn. If Chris did hatch a plan to kill Lynn, his invitation to their friend Phil Day to visit him at the Northbridge Baths on the Saturday afternoon looks like a cunning and integral feature of the planning. Phil Day became a helpfully convenient witness to Chris's story of having talked to Lynn in the call he purports that she made to the telephone in the kiosk at the baths. Phil Day's evidence in the second inquest in 2003 was that neither Chris nor Lynn had been in contact with Phil for some time, until Chris telephoned Phil a few days before Saturday, January 9, and apologised to Phil for being a somewhat absent friend and explained that he and Lynn had been having problems. In that call, at least as Phil has recalled it, Chris asked Phil to come to Northbridge Baths to meet him, to talk about the state of Chris and Lynn's marriage. And we covered some of this in a previous episode. I'm revisiting it because there are aspects of it that look deeply suspicious. By his action, Chris was seen by Phil as a husband concerned to salvage his marriage, so much that he asked a long-time friend to come along, to listen, and perhaps give advice to him and Lynn, although Phil was not married himself. And yet, after the end of his shift at Northbridge Baths with no sign of Lynn, the same husband drove north to fetch Joanne and return her to Bayview and his wife's bed. There's something else that doesn't sit right. Chris knew that Lynn's mother, Helena, would be at the baths, intending to see her daughter and Chris at the same time. Is it likely that Chris would have wanted to talk to Phil about the marriage while his mother-in-law was there too? Lynn's demise looks premeditated, and the lovely drink that Lynn was handed the night before had probably been laced with sedatives to knock her out. Chris's request to Phil Day to come to Northbridge Bars looks like a setup to ensure Phil would be an unwitting witness to Chris's reaction to a telephone call that Lynn never really made to the kiosk at the baths. I believe that when Chris invited Phil to the baths, Chris knew that if his plan ran properly, Lynn wouldn't turn up to meet her mother or their friend Phil. People want to provide a version of events that is believable, and it's just being able to pull that apart and find the changes in language and the potential deception. Paul Kirby is a former New South Wales police detective. He now specialises in very different investigations in Australia and internationally. They're forensic examinations, but not of DNA or blood trails. Paul examines the precise wording and construction of written statements. He breaks down the words in relevant emails, letters and other documents people write. If If you're changing your language, you're doing it for a reason. Suspects edit the truth subconsciously. In the same way that they want to avoid danger areas when they're being questioned, they avoid areas of risk in their writing. Paul looks for the telltale red flags for these deceptions. If I'd known this technique back in my policing days, and uh, I, I would have had a different outcome with some of the investigations that I did because I just wasn't alert to the language back in those days as I am now. 
Paul Kirby has been carefully examining Chris Dawson's two-page handwritten statement to police from August 1982. It's evidence that the Office of the Director of Public Prosecutions didn't have in the police brief of evidence when the recommendations for a murder trial were rejected. Chris's 1982 statement to police had somehow been lost by police, and we've dealt with the remarkable document in earlier episodes. It's available on the Australian's website, theteacherspet.com.au. Criminal lawyers see the statement as a significant problem for Chris in the event of a prosecution because of the lies in his own words. To recap briefly, he gave a deeply misleading account of the stress in the marriage. He attributed the difficulties to Lynn's spending on her credit card. He made no mention of Joanne and the fact that he had groomed and been having sex with her since she was his student in Year 11 at Cromer High. Now those were the obvious deceptions that jumped out of Chris's statement. Paul Kirby has been analysing the phrasing and nuancing of the words, sentences and pronouns. The statement indicates that Friday night to Saturday is a highly sensitive area for him and more likely the the time of a crime being committed. Paul's view, based on his scrutiny of Chris's writing, is that the coroners have got it right. Lynn was dead prior to Saturday morning, January 9, the morning on which Chris claimed he dropped her at Monavale bus stop, then went home himself with his two daughters before driving them to Northbridge Bars and starting his part-time job as a lifeguard. I'm looking for changes in language. Daughter's changes on the critical day of Saturday the 9th of January and daughter's changes to girls. In Chris's statement in which he describes events leading chronologically up to that Saturday, Chanel and Sharon are described by Chris as, quote, my daughters, unquote. In his reference to Sharon on the Friday night, Chris calls her, our daughter. Later that night, she appeared distressed and had difficulty coping with our youngest daughter. Here's Chris's opening sentence in which he is describing the following day, Saturday. Saturday the 9th of Jan, she seemed happy and had decided to go to the markets, plus meet me, plus the girls, back at Northbridge Baths after 12. So now it's the girls. Now it's the girls. Not... Our daughters or our girls. That's right. And that puts me on the alert that there's a problem here. Daughters and daughter has now changed to the girls and there's no our in it, meaning that his girls are shared with his wife, Lynn. This to me looks like at this stage, Lynn may be deceased. Well, that's consistent with what the police and two coroners found. Right. So it's a change in language and the change in language doesn't appear to be justified. And he's using, and you'll see that he's using the plus sign as opposed to using and. There's a reason for him doing that and he's doing that subconsciously. And the question is whether or not he's committed to that story. And to me, it appears to be deceptive. I dropped her off at Mona Vale. Everything seemed fine. This whole paragraph from the 9th of January, the most critical thing that he's relaying to the police is the movement of Lynn that day. And he says he dropped her off at Mona Vale but doesn't give a time. 
Six months earlier, when Lynn's mother was worried sick and urging Chris to report his wife missing, he went to a local police station and he must have told Sergeant Gibbons on the front desk that he'd dropped Lynn at the bus stop about 7am because that's what Gibbons wrote down. In Chris's handwritten statement, however, he's left the time out of what is meant to be his detailed account of Lynn's movements that day. It's highly deceptive, this whole paragraph. The changes in language, the times, the omission of a critical time, because dropping her at Monaval would have been the very last time that he saw her that day. And why would you not give that time to the police who you're seeking help to find her? Well, the very last time he ever saw her. So he says, at Monaval, dropping her at Monaval. She seemed happy and had decided to go to the markets and meet me and the girls back at Northbridge Baths after 12. Then he says, Lynn rang the baths about 3pm. Well, you don't ring the baths. You ring a person at the baths. The baths can't answer the call. It's a person. You'd expect that in a truthful statement, if Lynn did in fact ring him at that location, his sentence would read something like, Lynn rang me at the baths about 3pm. And because there's no pronoun in there, it's omitted. It's an indicator to me that it's deceptive. She said she was with friends, not to worry. The friends aren't properly introduced into the story. That puts me on the alert. Because she doesn't name the friends? or He doesn't, he, yeah. She, he doesn't relay the friends. And you'd expect that they've been married for a long time. He would know who the friends are. Yeah, who you're with, darling. Yeah. Yeah, I just want to know you're okay. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. No mention of it anywhere in the story. And that's consistent that they're not properly introduced, which to me is indicating that this is deceptive. It was her turn that she'd ring later that week. She rang the following Saturday and said she needed more time and wouldn't return home until she felt happy to do so. What this skill does is it helps focus... The, the investigator or the interviewer into areas of a statement that need to be explored in detail and challenged. So if you had seen this statement with the expertise that you have and it was still a live investigation, would you have felt that you could attack certain areas because you were looking at a lying statement, the person had things to hide? Yes, this this is showing deception to me and it's giving me avenues of an inquiry that I would want to have detailed with him. What I've seen is, it's interesting, he, instead of commencing the story with a history of he and Lynn, he starts the story of, and he titles it Antecedent Report and he talks about possible contacts, he talks about things that he's purportedly done doesn't give the history of he and Lynn until two-thirds of the way into the statement, which I think is meaningful. And why is that meaningful? There hasn't been a proper introduction as to who Lynette Dawson is. She appears really as a title, not a person. Possible contacts. All girlfriends have been contacted. No success. Work colleagues. Warrywood Square Childminding Centre. No success. And he doesn't name anybody. He doesn't name anybody. You would think that a proper introduction of characters within that statement would be given names. 
but he's not done that. He says all girlfriends have been contacted, no success, but because he doesn't name them, you're suggesting that there's a concealment there that's deliberate, possibly to hide the fact that he hasn't actually contacted them. That's right. It, it, there appears to be deception present in that. If someone doesn't name people, it's that they don't want you to know who they are. Right. Well, I've spoken to a number of the girlfriends and they weren't contacted. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. So it, it, there's a lack of commitment that he's actually done that. Again, I don't see any pronouns. He doesn't say, I have contacted all of her girlfriends, remembering this is going to the police and he, the police will want to know, well, who have you contacted? Who are the people that we can eliminate or follow up with? So subconsciously, because he's not committed to a story, he's subconsciously omitted the pronoun I. A lack of that pronoun is an indicator of deception. Possibilities not tried. Previous employers who she was in close contact with. Dr Peter Baum, now Senator Baum, North Shore Medical Centre. Professor Michael Cousins, WA Flinders Uni. But then in the next part, where he talks about possibilities not tried, he names Dr Peter Baum and Professor Michael Cousins. And it's very important in any statement, and remembering he's writing this two-page version of events for a third party to read. He's writing it for the police to help them find Lynn Dawson. He talks about placing an advertisement in the Telegraph on the 26th of to appear on the 26th of March, 82. And then he uses what you term out-of-sequence information or redundant information that it appeared a day late on the 27th of March, 82. There's no real reason for anyone to put that in the statement. It, it doesn't serve any purpose. It's like it's a filler. We've recovered the Sydney Daily Telegraph from that day. The advertisement placed by Chris in late March, 1982 says... Lynn, I love you. We all miss you. Please ring. We want you home. Chris. Is he expecting somebody to check his story? Um, perhaps because he's feeling defensive, so he has to put in, oh, it appeared a day late, in the event that they go back and look up that particular edition of the Telegraph. Well, it just it's just a, an odd thing to... It, it, I'm trying to think of what the individual is writing for the police to find Lynn, mm. that, how does that help, mm. that the advertisement appeared a day late? He goes on further. There was a slight possibility of contact with a religious organisation. Lynn's mother followed through on this possibility. It doesn't add any substance to the story. The religious organisation isn't mentioned, was not named. It seems like a filler. Remembering that this story he's written... We haven't even got to the part yet where Lynn's gone, quote unquote, missing. You know, we're, we're not even um, two thirds of the way through and still she's not, the, the, the issue at hand about her disappearance is not discussed, the how she disappeared. When we get to the bottom of page one, there's a, a title called History. And this is interesting because we're now seeing a change in language as well. He refers to Lynn now, this being the most critical point of the story about his relationship, he doesn't say, my wife, Lynn. He just says, Lynn. 
And instead of using the word and, A-N-D, his language has changed in that he uses a plus sign. Now, there's no, there's no synonyms in statement analysis like this. If he's gone from using an and, the word and, to changing it to a plus sign, that's meaningful. And to me, that's indicating that there's some distance between their relationship already. But he says here, I left home for three days over Christmas and travelled north to be by myself. I returned home on Boxing Day, having missed my wife and daughters and hoping to resolve our difference. What is alerting me is the word difference. He uses it as a singular issue. Some people will say, we wanted to resolve our differences in our marriage and heal. He doesn't say that. He says, hoping to resolve our difference. There's one issue that's on his mind that he's articulated. We just don't know what that is. Many killers insist they never intended to kill their wife or partner. It's just that when they lashed out recklessly in a sudden rage, the consequences were fatal, often because of a blow to the head. The victim is typically knocked out, then falls heavily. Death can be instant if their head strikes a hard surface, such as concrete or tiles. If Chris exploded in fury at a minor provocation on the Friday night, then accidentally killed Lynn, it's not murder, but the lesser offence of manslaughter. New witnesses have talked to me about troubling instances of Chris's anger, his hot temper and physically threatening behaviour, particularly when it came to his obsession with Joanne Curtis. In certain circumstances, the information that these witnesses have could be admitted in a trial as propensity or tendency evidence. A jury or a judge could be asked to consider, for example, whether the accused was someone renowned for being gentle, mild-mannered and easygoing. Or alternatively, did he have a tendency, a propensity for intense eruptions of fury occasioned by threats and violence? Were there actual and relevant examples of this kind of rage? One of these new witnesses is Neil Buckeridge. I don't know if you've been to Cromer High School. Yeah. But opposite the woodwork rooms, there's like a concrete path, ramp-type thing that leads down past the girls' PE change rooms. Mm. Now, he was walking... Uh, Chris Dawson was walking down there, down the pathway, with a ramp-type thing, and one of the kids... Uh, yelled out a smart-ass comment, something like, um, you're still rooting Joanne, sir, or um, rooting students or something, sir. Something like that. And he spun on his heels and he sprinted back to where we were all standing. He grabbed the kid who he thought had said it, lifted him off the ground and started slamming him against the wall. You know, I, I practically shit myself for him. And, like, Dawson was saying, what did you say, what did you say, type thing. And, and the kid was just screaming, I didn't say it, I didn't say it, I didn't say anything, I didn't say anything. And the kid that got blamed for it, that Dawson had picked out, hadn't said it. And then uh, he dropped this kid who just slipped to the ground and uh, stormed off. And this is a brick wall? Yeah. And when he was saying... It wasn't me, I didn't do it, it wasn't me. He, you could tell, like, he sounded like a girl. His, his voice was really high-pitched. He was squealing, you know, he was terrified. And um, Dawson just dropped him and then stormed off and 
that was the last we saw of it. And I mean, it would take a fair bit of strength to lift somebody up and then... Oh, he, he was absolutely enormous, mate. He could have picked any kid up off the ground in that school. Oh, he was very moody. I found, like, some days he'd be, um, he could be in a good mood and he'd, he'd want to interact with the kids and everything like that. And then other moods, other days he'd just send the kids off to run around the park and disappear or or do nothing, you know. It's just, he was very surly. And, he, you know, you just didn't want to get on the wrong side of him. But when you heard about this latest case or you listen to the podcast, is that what's triggered you to raise it again? Or had you forgotten yeah. it? Well, well, I mean, when I heard Peter McIntyre um, describe how he, he, he jawed the bloke on the footy field, I, I, like, I know Peter McIntyre. He's a, he's a lovely bloke. Here's how former Cromer High student Peter McIntyre described the incident in an earlier episode. There was a priest on the other team. You know, he wasn't a fit guy, he was a bit overweight, and he stumbled into Chris and bumped Chris a little bit. And Chris immediately lost his temper and elbowed this guy in the in the jaw. And that was just really a uh, ridiculous reaction in a, you know, a gentle touch football game, quite over the top. That really stuck in my mind as being a bit, you know, crazy. I've never seen anybody react like that in a touch football match. Neil Buckeridge said that he felt sorry for Joanne, who was a few years older than him. He and many others were aware that she and the sports teacher, Mr Dawson, were having sex. Because it was the talk of the school, Henley, as you know. I mean, two-thirds of the kids in the school knew. The one-third of the kids that didn't know were the, were the super nerds or the waxheads, you know, that just never bothered. But um, any, any kid that knew what was going on in the school knew. In light of recent revelations of female teachers having sex with students at Cromer High, Neil no longer doubts the word of a friend from one of his classes back then. It only just occurred to me last night that one of the boys in our group was always bragging about having sex with this one teacher, and we just thought he was full of shit, but maybe he wasn't, you know? Which teacher was that? Neil named the woman. She has been named by other students who have reported their allegations to detectives from Strike Force Southwood, which was set up to investigate the sexual abuse at Cromer High through the 1980s. Do you think it's possible that Lynn went away and, you know, your old sports teacher could be completely innocent? No, I really don't, Henry. Because I'd seen that outburst and the way he reacted to being heard about Joanne and just the reaction of the man it just left no doubt in my mind that he's capable of it. If, if the police wanted to have a chat to you, you'd be happy to tell them? Oh, no problem at all, yeah. Neil believes that the obvious terror and high-pitched denials of the boy who had been singled out were sufficient to get through Chris's rage. And he'd realised the situation he put himself in and he spun on his heels and he stormed off almost as quick as he arrived. Have they gone under the slab to the soft soil yet? I think we'll know more about that later today. Okay, great, because I can't hardly sleep, Henley. Oh, mate, I, I mean, because I knew the guy and 
you know, I didn't know the girl, but I knew what she looked like and, and everything that just went on around it and how the podcast and and the the missteps and and oh it's just it's it's just consuming me at the moment. I, I just wanted to find the poor thing. Hello. So mate, what um uh, I was ringing about was yep. a conversation I had with a bloke who who was at school with you. Right. And he recounted an incident that he said he had never forgotten. Right. And he said it was, you know, quite scary at the time. As he remembered it, you were there. But someone, not you, yelled, yeah. yelled out to Mr Dawson something as he was walking across... I'm talking to Jeff Deegan. His surname was Deegan Ars at high school, but he shortened it in a formal legal process before he was married. He still lives on the northern beaches, and he remembers Neil Buckridge. Yeah, Bucko. Yeah, red-headed Neil Bucko. Yep, Buckridge, yep. Do you remember this? Yeah, yep. And that uh, Chris Dawson t- stopped, turned, and ran back... And was furious. Right, Absolutely yep. furious. Oh, look, not really. I know I know roughly where it would have been. And um, this is how bad my memory is, you know. I can't, honestly, can't even really remember it. You know, I'm not doubting that it happened, but I, I, I honestly cannot remember it. Mm. And he said that... Uh, uh, he recalled Mr. Dawson um, lifting you up by, like, the front Me? of the shirt. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. But, you know, like, honestly, I don't remember a lot from high school. Uh, very, very minimal, you know. Uh, my memory's pretty terrible. Mm. But I'm sorry I can't help. Maybe Neil's got me um, confused with someone else. When I spoke to Neil again, he was disappointed, but adamant. Neil is confident that the encounter occurred in the first few months of 1982. Chris was still at Cromer High then, but he would soon be quietly transferred by Education Department bureaucrats to Beacon Hill High. He had become a reputation risk because many in the Cromer community and most of the students knew he'd been having sex with a student and that Joanne had even moved into his house and taken over from Lynn, who had vanished. It's another example of the incompetence and moral failure of education officials who have been conspicuously silent through this investigation. They were unconcerned for the welfare of Joanne, who had been groomed from the age of 16, and was now just out of school but playing wife and stepmum. Were you very scared at that time, did you think... I can imagine I was very scared. I was a weedy little, you know, 16 or 17 year old at the time. Um, and you know, he was, they were big guys. They, they were sort of that chesty bonds kind of look, yeah. you know, blonde hair and very muscly. Um, and yeah, I, I should imagine I was very scared. Peter Schubert hasn't lived on the northern beaches for years. He and his wife have been trying apartment life in Kirribilli the harbourside suburb where the Prime Minister's official Sydney residence is situated. The former Manly Boys High student is rarely in touch these days with most of the people he surfed with as a teenager off Long Reef. 
Peter regularly partied with Cromer High students. He hung out at a disco, the Collaroy Plateau Bop, where the DJ played rock anthems from the early 80s by iconic bands like Cold Chisel, Australian Crawl and the Hoodoo Gurus. During Peter's part-time job at a Northern Beaches supermarket, he grew fond of a girl from Cromer High, right at the time she was being groomed by Chris Dawson. So I worked at Coles for years. Um, it was a great junior team then, you know. We, we had a really, like, good bunch of people and we had a lot of fun working there. Yeah. And and Joanne was a very attractive young girl and um, I was keen on her. We were exactly the same age. And, uh, you know, I'm sure I used to sort of pretty much ask her out every second or third week, but in a lighthearted way, there was nothing, anything more in it than that. On occasion, they'd send me down to collect trolleys and I'd go down into the car park and round them up and, you know, push them back up the ramp. And on this occasion, I was uh, down in the car park and rounding up the trolleys and about to head up the ramp and a sort of voice came out of the darkness of the car park, you know, hey, you, or words to that effect. And I turned around and there's this giant guy there and he sort of pinned me up against the wall of the ramp. My memory as it was, it was by my throat, but it was 38 years ago or so, so it could have been my chest, but it was certainly somewhere in that area. And shoved me against the wall and said words to the effect of just stay away from her. And I, I'm sort of looking at him going, stay away from who? I had no connection at all with you know, who he was in relation to Joanne. Although I did, by the time I'd got over the shock of that, know who he was because his brother taught me at Manly Boys High. Peter recalls Joanne with friendly affection. She was on the checkout in the coal store at DY and sometimes packing grocery bags. Her older sister, Belinda, worked in the deli section. Yeah, I, I do nothing but wish her well. I mean, you know, as I said, she's, you know... She's a she's a massive victim in all of this, you know. She might have made some poor decisions, but I don't think your decisions when you're 16 uh, count like they should for a grown man who should have known better. Yeah. You, you look at your, your own daughter or something that's 16 years old now. You know they're 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 not making sensible decisions. No. Have you thought about you know contacting her again, Peter, and just sending her a note of support or you know hello? Uh, I, 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 and, and until now, I, I hadn't, I suppose. I didn't even know if it was my place, but maybe I could. Maybe that's a good idea. Maybe that would be a lovely thing to do. Peter has talked to Damien Loon, the detective who began pursuing the case in 1998 and tried over many years to have Chris Dawson prosecuted for murder. But on each occasion, the Office of the Director of Public Prosecutions refused to run the case. The DPP is still currently reviewing a much stronger brief of evidence than it has previously seen, and the public interest in this case is now unprecedented. Do you recall him actually putting his hand on you and possibly around your throat? Oh, yeah. I'm a person that takes the truth seriously. Maybe it was just the brashness and silliness of youth that it kind of just let it wash off me. Um, You know, and sort of thought, who's this old guy? I've also been talking to Philip Barclay, a former student of North Sydney Boys High. He's never forgotten his encounter as a teenager with Chris Dawson, who taught at the school before he went to Cromer High. Well, it was a first 15 game, North Sydney Boys High, obviously, and um, Chris Dawson was the coach of our outfit. I'd left school by that time, so I wasn't a student at the school. 
I had some run-ins with Dawson in my time at the school. Um, in fact, he was part of the reason why I left, really. I just couldn't couldn't make any progress there. And uh, anyway, I was watching this first 15 game in the grandstand at North Sydney Oval, and I, I think our team were probably getting beaten, and I was mouthing off a bit, giving Dawson a bit of lip, I suppose. And uh, he was sitting several rows in front of me in the grandstand, and he got up out of his seat and sort of eyeballed me as he walked up the grandstand, up the aisle of the grandstand, and came in and got right in my face and told me I'd left school now, and if, if I said another word, he'd fucking kill me. He went off and turned around and walked back to his seat. How sure are you, Phil, that he said, I'll fucking kill you? I'm 100% sure. I've never forgotten it. I mean, I was only 15. No one's ever said that to me before or since. I'm 59 years old now. No one's ever said that to me, ever. As if you, people don't say that to people. There's no doubt in my mind that's what he said. I've told the story to people many times over the years. It was scary, yeah, but it wasn't. It seemed very cold and, you know. It was definitely odd. I've never forgotten it. Okay, and um, was Chris Dawson's um, threat sufficient to silence you that day? Oh, shit, yes. Yes, definitely. Did not say another word. Yeah, scared the shit out of me. Phil lives on a farm on the central coast. He is a qualified lawyer, although he doesn't practice. If the police wanted to get this from you, would you talk to them about it? If it's more or less corroborating what other people have said and people are reaffirming each other, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm quite happy to talk about it. Chris Dawson was fiercely determined to prevent anyone coming between him and Joanne. I have been in contact with another man who also describes having been threatened as a teenager because his interest in Joanne got back to Chris. Lynn got between Chris and Joanne every day. Oh, Hadley, good. That's good. No. <laughs> Do you uh, guess where I am? Oh, okay. Northbridge, Northbridge Baths. <laughs> For your weekly swim or you mean something? Yeah, well, in summer. I tend to come down each day, but I'm, I'm such a lazy bum. Maya Sydney is being too tough on herself. In an earlier episode of The Teacher's Pet... Maya described the kiosk at the baths and her vivid recollections of Chris Dawson at the peak of physical fitness, wearing swimming trunks in his part-time job there. Maya has been working hard to track down people from the baths who may be relevant. She has put me in touch with Jane Morgan, who was working in the kiosk on that fateful day, January 9, 1982. You heard Jane briefly earlier in this episode, she was happy to answer my questions and she's helping police with theirs. And if someone rang for Chris, how would you have got a message to him? But yeah, I could probably have shouted from the shop to nearly everywhere if I could see him or waved, you know. Okay, so there wasn't like I don't a... ever remember doing that. It's weird that I've still got this diary. I think I'm just so embarrassed that I'd have to either, you know, shred it. Because <laughs> it's got all the boys that I had crushes on and... <laughs> Yeah. Don't shred it. Don't shred it. Out. No, I better keep it. it. Jane read to me her diary entry from Saturday, January 9, 1982. 
worked in shop 8 to 5.30, didn't get any money because, as usual, Cole left at 12 and Chris Dawson never paid. So, Jane, um, you mentioned in that note that Chris Dawson never pays? Yes. Can you give me the context and background of that? But I worked for Cole Stubbing. You know, he was um, he was the one that leased the bars. Yeah. And he was always there. But then I think that year he got the Dawsons to help. When he he wanted you know a bit of time off or whatever, then they'd come in and just do the odd part of a day here and there. For occasionally Chris would be there for the afternoon and he'd close up. He must have paid me. Yeah, so maybe he didn't normally pay when he was there. Yeah, it was like $2 an hour on a cloudy day and 4 on a sunny day. Just cash in hand, you know. And I worked there from probably when I was about 15. On that day, yep. uh, being a Saturday, yep. if someone had called in for Chris, yep. when he was, uh, you know, outside the kiosk, uh, yeah, and and the phone rang in the kiosk from you know was someone calling in for him on that day. Yeah, you would have been the person who would have answered the call. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, okay. it's just a pity. Why didn't they ask me after? That's what it's so frustrating because I have no idea. Yeah, well, they yeah. didn't take it seriously until the late nineties. Apparently, Chris said that the girl was shocked, taken the phone call from his wife, saying that she was going away. But I was never asked. Okay, and um, do you think you would remember if you know someone had called for Chris and you then asked him to come and take a call, or would that happen a lot? That even though I don't ever remember any phone call that I got at the bars in specific, you know. Yeah. There was nothing memorable, and I don't even know if I ever spoke to her either. You mean you, know? Lynn, you mean Lynn? Yeah. Yeah. And Chris, um, you never felt like he was trying to hit on you or anything? No. I think I was more, I was a real study bug, so I think I wasn't even, you know, that wouldn't even registered. Even if he'd tried, I probably wouldn't have even noticed, you know? Yeah. Like, I wasn't, yeah. I would never have thought, especially because I would have known he was married, assumedly. Oh, well. Bloody hell. I'm uh, amazed all this has gone on. Okay. Yeah, I feel like I'm, I wish I did remember more because her poor parents. According to Jane's diary, Cole was there with Jane until noon and it wasn't necessary for her, Cole and Chris to be working there at the same time. It would have been a waste of Cole's money. It raises the possibility that Chris went to the baths later, giving him more time at home or elsewhere that Saturday morning. Like Maya, Jane has been dwelling on Lynn's fate since listening to the podcast episodes. She's been thinking a lot about some of the area around Northbridge Baths as a possible burial site, perhaps under the cover of darkness on a Friday night. Jane went back there recently to photograph these areas, in sandy ground and around bushland near where the sheds were and out of sight. And it is a common theme in this case. So many people who know the different areas or who have listened intently and done their own Google Maps and Google Earth research have a theory, a hunch, 
about where Lynn could have been buried. The locations proposed by these well-intentioned people are many and varied, such as bushland off Macars Creek Road at Bayview, where a local called Damo tells a story of seeing a strongly built man acting suspiciously, with a scratch on his neck and dirt on his hands late on a Friday night around the time Lynn disappeared. Damo showed myself and a friend, Northern Beaches resident and ABC journalist Rebecca Latham, the location. We traipsed across the area, then scraped and dug in soft soil beneath a concealed rocky ledge near the road. Many people point to Paul Dawson's property down the road from Lynn and Chris's old house. I've talked to a woman who lives there with her husband and young children. She told me the police have told her they don't intend to dig there. Others who grew up in the area say Lynn's remains are in the ground beneath a boulder on one of the fire trails behind the Dawson's houses, or in a cave system near Lake Manmora, or on the sandy bottom of the Pacific Ocean a few kilometres off Long Reef, or in the ground and bushlands surrounding the Trial Bay Jail at Southwest Rocks, or the footings of a property being built at Avalon in early 1982, or under a tennis court at Cromer High. The theories are endless. My hopes revolved around the areas being targeted in the police dig at Lynn and Chris's old property at Bayview. The idea that a husband would bury his wife's body on their property seems far-fetched to some. They say it's just too obvious. The risk of exposure must rise. With a major development in one of the state's biggest cold case murders. But it's not a rare occurrence. Live now to Andrea Nicholas in Maitland, where police have been digging. Andrea, it's an extraordinary breakthrough. Rosanna, this discovery has been five decades in the making. Decades that Colleen Adams' daughters believed their mother had run out on them. Instead, it appears she was buried right here in the backyard of their family home. This morning, police started excavating the site after the victim's husband, Jeffrey Adams, who's been charged with her murder, led them here yesterday. I have finally found my mother. After 45 years of hoping, we have found her. It's hard to say in a few words what I am feeling, but I am so grateful to the South Australian police and everyone who has worked to help find her. Before being charged with murder, the woman's alleged killer had consistently said that he saw his wife leaving the property with packed suitcases, then get into a car with another woman and drive off, never to be seen again. ABC News. Lynn Dawson's brother Greg Sims joins us now from Newcastle, north of Sydney. Well, it's been a roller coaster 24 hours for you, I would imagine. How are you feeling this morning? We didn't have much sleep last night. We're surviving, only just. It's uh, exciting to uh, see what they're doing on the block. And let's hope they have some sort of result this time. If they don't find a body, and of course no one is sure if they will or not, despite the theories, are you still confident that charges will be laid? I believe they have a very strong case, even though it is circumstantial. 36 years of wondering, how has that impacted on you and the rest of your family? We've been suffering without her, but um, we just sort of lumber along. All right, Greg, uh, I can only imagine what sort of a roller coaster ride your emotions have had over not just the past 24 hours or so, but over the past 36 years. So I thank you very much for your time this morning. Well, thank you, Sandy, and let's hope that we get a result. Excavations will resume this morning at that property at Bayview, owned 36 years ago by Lynn Dawson and her husband, Chris. Police there searching for that young mother, who, as I say, was just 33 when she disappeared.
Sarah Bunning lives near the old Dawson home. As the police dig continued, Sarah spoke to me about the local anticipation. Sarah and her friends and neighbours have been following the case avidly. And everyone's just really hoping. Yeah, that, that sort of sentiment, I think. Fingers crossed, right? How is that having your family's deepest secrets being shared with and analysed by millions of people around the world? I know other members of my family are really private and they're probably really not happy about it. I guess I'm a little bit more optimistic that it might lead to answers, but it's also, as her daughter, kind of beautiful to hear all these people coming forward and, you know, hearing how much she was loved. So even though I hear their heartbreak and I hear their regret and, you know, a lot of people wishing that they had been more assertive with nudging the police along or, you know, whatever. Lynn's daughter, Chanel, is maintaining her single-minded focus on finding out the truth, whatever the consequences, as she told 60 Minutes reporter Alison Langdon. Do you think a case this cold can be solved? Yeah, I do. Someone out there has a piece to the puzzle Mm. to give us the answers that we want, or not that we want, but that we need. Mm. So do you want to see someone brought to justice even though the only person that realistically could be is your father? I want to see the truth come to life. I feel like I want to be the voice that my mother doesn't have as much as I can be. Just 24 hours before the jackhammers and concrete cutting equipment were brought into the property, the former Director of Public Prosecutions for New South Wales, Nicholas Cowdery, came in for fierce criticism. The retired senior lawyer broke his silence about the DPP's role in the case in an interview with the ABC's Australian Story program. I decided that there was not a reasonable prospect of conviction on the basis of the evidence that was supplied to us. That was his decision after the first inquest in 2001. It was run by the then senior coroner, Jan Stevenson. Jan Stevenson's finding in 2001 that a known person, Chris Dawson, had committed the indictable offence of murder followed her consideration of the large police brief of evidence rather than her examination of witnesses in a live hearing. Uh, And so there were some possibilities that had not been tested. Accordingly, Jan Stevenson's recommendation to the DPP for a murder trial was not taken up by Nicholas Cowdery. In 2003, there was a second inquest into the disappearance of Lynn Dawson by a different coroner. On this occasion, he arranged for witnesses who had given statements in the course of the police investigation to be brought to the coroner's court and examined and tested as to the evidence that they gave. The reference here is to the five days of hearings run by the Deputy State Coroner, Carl Milovanovich. You heard Carl's strong views about the case in an earlier episode. At the end of that hearing, once all of that had been done, that second coroner was of the view that a known person should be prosecuted for an indictable offence and referred the papers again uh, to the Director of Public Prosecutions. Nicholas Cowdery then went on to suggest that Lynn might still be alive. Without a body, without knowing, first of all, whether in fact she is dead, without knowing, secondly, if she is dead, how she died, 
it's very hard to mount a case of a reasonable prospect of conviction just on motive and the undefined existence of means and opportunity. That makes it very weak. What do you think happened to Lynn Dawson? Lynn Dawson disappeared. And that really is, as far as I can take it, uh, in my own mind. In mounting the discussion, very little consideration has been given to Chris Dawson and his position. He is either somebody responsible for his wife's death or somebody who was deserted by his wife. We don't know which it is. But I think we should have that in the back of our minds. Watching the program at home, Pat Jenkins, Greg Sims, their cousin Wendy Jennings, who has written numerous letters to the DPP, and Wendy's daughter, Alison, were incensed. Alison runs the family's Facebook website, looking for Lynette, with Pat's daughter, Pauline. They were disgusted with the former DPP's responses. Oh, I watched it last night and I was yelling at my TV. The former DPP appeared to be suggesting there was a 50-50 chance of Lynn being alive, but being the deserter of her husband. It's a proposition that belies common sense and factual evidence, but it is consistent with the errors Mr Cowdery's office made when it reported wrongly to Pat Jenkins and Wendy Jennings that Lynn had been cited by her mother some time after Lynn had disappeared. Their expectations of Nicholas Cowdery and the office he once led have ebbed to nothingness over years of rejection of the police brief of evidence. Here's Alison again. I'm like, are you serious? Like, you can't make this stuff up. And it's, I think it's pretty disgusting considering he's pretty much dismissing what the police do. And the police know through experience, you know, if someone disappears, their bank accounts are not touched. They're, mm. you know, their pay packet from employment's not touched. They're not registered anywhere. You know, they don't have a passport, nothing. They're dead. You know, I'm frustrated for, for Pat and for Greg and for Phil and for Marilyn and, you know, frustrated for my Uncle Lynn and my Auntie Helena and, and all the oldies that have passed who've gone to their graves not knowing what's going on and he was presiding over everything at the time and they were still alive. Here's Nicholas Cowdery again. If there are grounds for revisiting the case... To have it re-examined and a fresh assessment made as to whether or not there should be a prosecution, then I'm all for that course to happen. Why do taxpayers fund costly coronial proceedings, inquests, for the DPP to casually disregard two coroner's findings that Lynn has been dead for 36 years? There is not a shred of viable evidence pointing to Lynn being alive. Here's Pat Jenkins. That's an unbelievable sort of statement because you just couldn't survive without, yeah. without, without sort of having some evidence that you do exist. Yes. Um, yeah. I just yeah. thought that was a bit of a ridiculous statement, actually. Maybe he's just justifying uh, the finding he made and yeah. can't really backpedal on that. It's almost a defence of Chris Dawson. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure it's not in defence of him, but that's what it seems like. Twenty years ago, Paul Hume asked one of his best cops on the Northern Beaches, Damien Loon, to try to crack the case, resulting in the two inquests and the formal findings both times that Lynn was dead. The retired detective inspector's head was spinning over the former DPP's comments. So how can Cowdery then say that she's not dead? <laughs> yeah. Like, legally, she is. That's what we thought. I mean, two separate coroners. 
But Paul Hume was not optimistic that the new police dig would find Lynn's remains. I don't think they'll find her. I really don't. But, I mean, that, that house, you know, backs on the bush now like you wouldn't believe. Of course, well, it's got to be done. If they find the body, they'll charge it. That's, that's the obvious scenario. I mean, yeah, I'm glad they're doing it. But, I mean, uh, I think they're talking about $500,000 worth. That's a, that's a lot of money and wouldn't have been uh, available back in the 80s or something. Chris Dawson could say anything. He could say, Lynn used bank card. Yeah. But okay, they'd run with that as if it was fact. Police Commissioner Mick Fuller rejects the suggestion that Lynn went away and might still be alive. Certainly from my perspective, I believe that she was killed. It's our job to get to the bottom of the truth. And whilst we didn't do that three decades ago, I'm adamant we will do that in 2018. We're hoping the new evidence is enough to push this matter uh, into criminal prosecution. And if it doesn't, we will continue to investigate the matter. We won't give up. Lynn's sister Pat was on tenterhooks. It's always there. My, my mind's always out at Bayview. I, I think I'm very anxious. I mean, we've been to this before when, when they were over there in 98, 99. We didn't tell Mum and Dad then because we didn't want to put them through that in case, you know, if they found something, then that was the time to tell them. But it just makes you feel a bit fragile. And you're just hoping and hoping and hoping because... You know, it would just solve everything. If they find a body, it'll solve everything. If they don't, we're sort of back to where we were before. You know, where is she? So, I mean, is she still there? They don't find her where they're looking now. Is she still there or is she somewhere else? You know, we just don't know. So we just have to hope. Just have to hope. Pat recalled the property and the lie of the land at Bayview from when she and her husband Ron would visit Lynn and Chris. It's yeah, it's a big yard. It's a very big yard, and um, and um, I can't be all rock, surely. I'm very heartened by the commissioner. You know, he 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 doesn't mince words. He's so dogmatic, isn't he? That this won't if they don't find her body, this you know doesn't mean they can't go ahead. We've known she's dead for a long time. I've known she's dead since 1998 when we heard the evidence of what she'd gone through, and. Um, you know, to find, the, to find her would be the, like the ultimate thing, you know, and to be able to sort of put her to rest and not to have her lying under a concrete slab under the house or if she's there, you know, or something like that. They said they'd go for five days and, like, this is number six, so... In Greg and Marilyn's comfortable home near Newcastle, a couple of hours north of Sydney, we sat and talked about all the possibilities. Greg's phone started ringing. It was Daniel Poole the detective senior constable in charge of the murder investigation. He's been working long hours chasing new witnesses and going over statements and fresh leads with a team of detectives. But he was the bearer of disappointing news for Greg and Marilyn. The dig had not found Lynn's remains or anything of evidentiary value. The searching at Bayview was now over. The police teams would soon be leaving with all their equipment. Greg and Marilyn held each other to soften the blow. They were glad it was done and relieved that it was over, but deeply disappointed by the outcome. Lynn's younger brother and sister-in-law thanked the police and the family now living in Lynn's old home. Their thoughts turned to sending flowers to the couple whose property had been crawling with police for the best part of a week. And um, in terms of the owners, we'll be forever grateful for them to have um, had to deal with this. Mm. And uh, we're just so terribly sorry that it had to be like this for them. And we've got peace of mind now as well, knowing that um, 
the likely of um, Lynn being there is very, very slim. Yeah, it's all up to the DPP to make their decision now. The detective Daniel Poole called Pat with the news. Yeah, I don't think it's really sunk in, in yet. It's, right. uh, Daniel sort of said, you know, how rocky it is. I mean, that's just left more questions than it's answered, really, hasn't it? Mm. If her body had been found, not that I expect it would have been a whole body. Sounds yes. awful talking about it like this. But, you know, you know, it would have been such a definite finality to that, you know. Yes. And, but, you know, but she could be anywhere. Because, like, all the air at the back was bush. And I walked through it when it was still bush. We went to the back of the house. You couldn't even see the house. So the bush was so dense. Now there are roads and houses. Now, you know, with roads and concrete and, you know, yes. if she's buried anywhere along along that area, I think, you know, I don't think she'll be found. Mm. Maybe we'll never know. So we just have to wait and hope the DPP does the right thing, yeah. what we think is the right thing. A month after the former DPP Nicholas Cowdery had suggested that Lynn might still be alive, he was at the centre of another round of criticism, this time over his comments about another woman from Sydney's northern beaches, Kelly Lane, in a very different case of murder. Kelly Lane was prosecuted for having killed her two-day-old baby when Nicholas Cowdery was in charge of the DPP's office. In Kelly's case, there was no body. She denied wrongdoing the case was significantly circumstantial. And in the eyes of many lawyers, including those campaigning for her release, the evidence against Kelly Lane was weaker than what had been arrayed against Chris Dawson. Kelly Lane was convicted in 2010 after her sex life, her physical relationships with a number of young men and her multiple pregnancies became public fodder. ABC journalist Caro Meldrum-Hanna interviewed Nicholas Cowdery as part of Caro's investigation for a documentary which aired in October 2018. Was she a risk to the community? <laughs> I mean, well, mother, I, I, motherhood is important I, I and I the value think, of that, but... I don't think Kelly Lane was a risk to the community in that she would go around killing other people's babies. Um... She seemed to be a, a, a bit of a risk to the virile young male portion of the community. But that's, that's not grounds for putting her in prison, of course. <laughs> the former DPP's response angered viewers who saw him as smugly laughing about Kelly Lane's sex life. Supporters of a prominent Australian foundation, White Ribbon, were shocked. White Ribbon campaigns to help women and girls who are victims of abuse, and at the time of his comments, Mr Cowdery held an important leadership role as White Ribbon's chairman. Former prosecutor Nicholas Cowdery has resigned as the chair of the White Ribbon Board over comments about convicted baby killer Kelly Lane's sex life. A statement from White Ribbon said... Mr Cowdery supports the need for every person to be mindful of the language that they use and the meaning it can have. In the next episode of The Teacher's Pet... She has diaries. She has daily diaries. She wants to make it public, so she wants to go public. The Teacher's Pet is a podcast series investigated and written by me, Hedley Thomas, with original music and audio production by Slade Gibson Audio. 
This episode has relied on a number of interviews by David Murray and audio editing by Eric George. Ongoing backup from John Lehman, Katrina Mathewson, Nicholas Gray, Paul Whittaker, Rob Lowenthal and Christopher Dorr. This podcast series is brought to you by The Australian and proudly hosted by Wooshka. Visit theteacherspet.com.au for additional documentary material as well as credits for the full team behind this multi-part production. The website includes further information about all of the key people, witnesses and interviewees in this series. Hi, I'm Headley Thomas, and I want to introduce you to The Australian's latest investigative podcast, The Lighthouse, from my good friend and colleague David Murray. David's done a fantastic job. He's been working closely with people in the iconic community of Byron Bay to try to find out what happened to a young Belgian backpacker, Theo Hayes. Theo is travelling around Australia and making new friends at places like Uluru in this vast country's red centre. But then in May 2019, he disappeared from beautiful Byron Bay. David's podcast, The Lighthouse, has already generated a lot of interest in Theo's intriguing story and how he vanished. And I know there's a lot more information to come as the series unfolds. Byron Bay is home to the Hollywood star Chris Hemsworth. It's a haven for writers, poets, musicians and actors and the good people of this laid-back surfing community are pulling out all stops to help find Theo. Please listen to David Murray's podcast. It's called The Lighthouse. Search for The Lighthouse in your podcast app.